think what the 48th 48th behind lens i'm debbie lynn elias moviesharkdeblore.com you can find me online you can find me in print you can find me in the culver city observer the arizona newspaper groups examiner uh elias entertainment on youtube and 140 some other places in addition to those uh, but you can find me right here every monday on adrenalineradio.com and our sister station adviceradio.com live with Behind the Lens. For those of you just joining us the first time or aren't familiar with the show, we Behind the Lens is just that. We go behind the lens and below the line um, and talk to directors, producers, composers, writers, screenwriters, authors. Uh, and today you'll hear from my interview with a Pulitzer Prize winner. Um, always trying to educate, enlighten, and entertain and, you know, give you some real texture as to what's going in depth, as to what's going on behind the scenes. So when you go to your theater and you hear me yell, sit and watch the credits, you'll know why I'm telling you to do that and who these people are. Um, it, trust me, it makes them happy and they do appreciate it when everybody pays attention some of the time. Uh, you know, and their work is very much appreciated without all of the people behind the lens and below the line there would be nobody in front of the lens. So always keep that in mind when you go to the movie theaters. Uh, we are now officially in award season. Holiday season and award season. And award season kicked off last Tuesday. Jordan and I were at the 2016 Spirit Award nominations announcements uh, live from the uh, W Hotel. It was broadcast live on IFC. Spirit Awards themselves. Uh, the crown jewel of Film Independent. Film Independent, uh, as you know, is one of my pet projects and very dear to my heart. Uh, it is a true champion of independent film and the independent spirit and diversity that uh, a lack of $50 million <laughs> um, mandates. Um, it was, we've got some interesting nominees for the Spirit Awards. Um, some of which I like, some of which I'm a bit befuddled by. Um, but all in all, you know, quite pleasing with some of our nominees. And we're going to talk about some of those shortly. But kicking off uh, the proceedings on Tuesday morning, we had Elizabeth Olsen and John Boyega reading the announcements. And you may find it strange that you've got Elizabeth Olsen, many of you know her as Wanda Witch, uh, in the Avengers franchise now. And of course, John Boyega, the biggest franchise in the history of the world, of the galaxy, uh, the Star Wars with The Force Awakens when it opens on December 18th. And the two of them, who both got their start in indies and who both still vacillate back and forth, Elizabeth perhaps more than anyone, um, wait till you see her new film, I Saw the Light, which has been bumped by Sony Picture Classics to next year. Um, and don't be surprised if we hear her name in 2017 for awards for her performance as Hank Williams' wife. 
Um, amazing, amazing performance. But for Tuesday's purposes, she was there announcing for this year's Spirit Award nominees with John. And after the nominations, I had a chance to ask John the all-important question. You've got Wanda Witch there. You have Finn there. So... Let's get the big question out of the way. Yep. Who would win in a showdown? A showdown. W- Wanda Witch and the Avengers or the Force? Ooh. Ooh. The Force, you know. Because she's still upcoming, isn't she? Well, in the Marvel Universe, in the cinematic universe, she's still she's still trying to train up. I think the Force is just... The Force will win. And, of course, I heartily agree, but... And hopefully at the box office, uh, the force will win out uh, when it hits theaters December 18th. But joining, we're going to talk a little more about Spirit Award, some of the nominees. But I want to let you know that coming up at uh, 11.15, we're going to have Sam Klemke live. Sam Klemke is, let's just say, he is one of the most interesting characters that I have come across in a long time. And apparently that is exactly what filmmaker Matthew Bate down in Australia thought when he saw some YouTube videos. Sam Klemke is the subject of this new documentary, Sam Klemke's Time Machine. Uh, basically, Sam started chronicling his life every year back in 1977. It also was the same year that NASA launched the Golden Record uh, into space, which chronicled humanity. Uh, so we have... A human's life playing out while the golden record is marking its and math uh, director matthew uh, bait marks the journey of where the golden record is at each point of the year when he again we reconnect with sam's home videos as to where he was in his life um it is one of the most <laughs> entertaining documentaries i've ever seen Uh, And I can't wait for Sam to get on the line with us uh, today. Uh, I got so many questions for him. Uh, Even I'm amazed. But then at 1130, we have another very unique, unique documentary we're going to talk about uh, with filmmakers Timothy Kane from Philadelphia and Anika Iltis who are the producers and directors of the Barkley Marathons, The Race That Eats at Young. Now, there's a lot about Barkley Marathons. It's been described as one of the top 100 most difficult races in the world. It, it bodes a field of 40 runners each year uh, from, that are international. Very few ever finish this race. And we're going to talk to Anika and Timothy about the parameters of it. But let's just say, there's a lot about the Barkley Marathons. It's like Fight Club. Rule one, you don't talk about Fight Club. Rule two, you don't talk about Fight Club. Well, here, you don't talk about Barkley Marathons. Everything is kind of hush-hush. But we're going to talk about it today. So, but before all of that, let's go back to talking about some of the Spirit Award nominees. uh, Just to give you a hint, a glimpse of what's to come. Because it's a good... uh, predictor of what we may see with the Oscars. Uh, We've been seeing a lot of parallels the past few years between the Oscars and the Spirit Awards. Spirit Awards is held the day before the Oscars on the beach in Santa Monica. And I understand we're moving a little further north on the beach, but we'll still be intense. It'll still be probably raining. Um, But we'll see what happens on February 27th. For now, some of the standouts 
that really captured everybody's attention. Carol, it's just now breaking out in theaters, picked up six Spirit Award nominations, including one for director Todd Haynes. And in the coming weeks, you're going to hear some of my exclusive interview with Todd. But interesting is that we have Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara vying for Best Act, Best Female Lead uh, for a Spirit Award. Rooney picked up the Best Actress at Cannes this year for her performance in Carol. Kate picked up the Spirit Award last year for Blue Jasmine at the Spirit Awards. So we're going to see what happens uh, with that. They could cancel themselves out, which if that would happen, don't be surprised uh, to see... Brie Larson possibly sneak in there for Room, or Belle Powley, Diary of a Teenage Girl, which also picked up a few nominations uh, for Spirit Awards, including uh, <clears throat> one for Mariel Heller, writer and director. Uh, similarly for Room, with Brie picking up a nomination, um, the screenwriter, Emma Donahue, who adapted her own novel for the screen, uh, she picked up a Spirit Award nomination for Best First Screenplay, which I'm very thrilled about. In the coming weeks, you're going to hear from her as well. You're going to, And we've also got Jesse Andrews picked up a, a Best First Screenplay for Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, which is one of the most charming, enchanting uh, films out there this year. And I'm so glad it got some attention. Um, and the fact that Jesse also did his own adaptation, I think it speaks greatly. Later on in today's show, you're going to hear from Donald Margulies, the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright and screenwriter, the man responsible for The End of the Tour, starring Jason Siegel and Jesse Eisenberg. Um, that, an interesting story, a fascinating film. Uh, screenwriter Phyllis Hagee for Carol. We're also going to hear from her in the coming weeks. Uh, I sat down with her at length. She picked up a Best Screenplay nomination. One of the glaring omissions uh, for this year's Spirit nominations, I think, is for Best Male uh, or Best Supporting Male Lead. Paul Dano picked up a Best Supporting Male Lead for playing Brian Wilson in Love and Mercy. So much of the performance of Paul in playing the younger Brian Wilson is predicated upon John Cusack as the older Brian Wilson. And I think it's a great oversight on the part of the nominating committee of the Spirit Awards, some of whom I know, and you'll hear about this in detail from me, um, that you ignore John. I, th I don't think you can have Paul Dana without having John. Um, some nice surprises that we had with the nominee, Ben Mendelsohn. Ben Mendelsohn picks up a Best Male Lead nomination for his performance in Mississippi Grand. He's going up against Jason Siegel. Uh, and a few other people. But I have to tell you, if you haven't seen Mississippi Grand, it is on VOD. It is digital. It's even on Time Warner VOD. Um, see it, see it, see it. He is, and Ryan Reynolds are just fabulous in that film. Absolutely fabulous. Documentaries, some wonderful documentaries are nominated for Spirit Award nominations, uh, not the least of which is Best of Enemies, uh, one of my picks of the year, uh, based on the 1968 presidential race and the William F. Buckley-Gore Vidal uh, dueling as dueling ABC commentators uh, through, the through both the Democratic and Republican conventions that summer in 68. Uh, Morgan Neville and Robert Gordon did an excellent job with that. So I can't wait to see what happens with uh, Docs, especially since uh, 
another one of my faves, Maru. Um, true life story. Forget about seeing Everest. You want to see some, some people climbing up mountains? You see the real thing. You see Maru with Jimmy Chin and company. Uh, and his wife, uh, Chai Vazzarelli, is also a director on it. Uh, it is breathtaking. It is white-knuckling. Phenomenal. And that has picked up a Spirit, uh, Spirit Award nomination for Best Documentary. And as luck would have it for Chai, she also picks up an award f- uh, nomination as a candidate for the Truer Than Fiction Award for her documentary, Incorruptible which was one of my top picks at L.A. Film Festival this year. Absolutely amazing story uh, on the 2012 presidential campaign in Senegal uh, with president uh, focusing on pre- incumbent President Wade and Mackie Saul. Um, there's humor, there's heart, there's a lot of truth, and as we keep seeing in films, be they fiction like Our Brand is Crisis, or something like Incorruptible, or sweet uh, the Haitian documentary, Sweet Mickey for President. Politics are pretty much the same everywhere we go. So there are some really hot contenders, interesting contenders for the Spirit Awards. Um, and as I said, next couple months, I've interviewed already over half of the nominees. So you're going to get to hear some of those, some of their thoughts on what went into their respective projects, be it as director, be it as costumer, be it as camera. And I, speaking of camera, I have to mention another oversight with the Spirit Awards. I don't know how they could have overlooked Danny Cohen for Room. Danny Cohen is one of the most gifted cinematographers out there. And what he does in taking an 11 by 11 room and making it claustrophobic on the one hand, yet expanding it to the highest depths of the sky on the other, is a testament to his skill um, and to director Lenny Abrahamson. So I'm very disappointed about that oversight as well. But we'll talk more about Spirit Awards as weeks go by. Right now, while we are waiting for... Why don't we take a commercial break right now? Uh, and hopefully we'll, Sam will be on the line. Sam Klemke will be on the line when we come back. So we'll be right back after this message. Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And welcome back to Behind the Lens, and a big welcome on board to Sam Klemke. Hey, Sam. Uh, good morning. Well, well, this is a real treat, a real treat to have you this morning with us, Sam. This is... Well, thank you very much. Tell me who I'm talking with, and uh, what is your show? Oh, this is, this is Debbie Elias. You're on Behind the Lens. We're on AdrenalineRadio.com. Okay. Did Emily not tell you anything? I tried to, but we were, we were already on. Great, great. Well, I, I'm prepared. Are we t- we're talking live to Los Angeles now. Yes, right? you are. You are very much. All right. You're very much live with Los Angeles. Actually, Whittier, but, you know, who's counting? Sam, I, I have to tell you, Sam Klemke's Time Machine, this is one of the most entertaining, strange, but entertaining documentaries I have ever seen. <laughs> 
I'll take it. Now, you know, give people an idea. I, I didn't I, I set up a little earlier on as to this. You started filming yourself just as to do it every year, doing like a year-end summary back in 1977. Right. That's the year I started doing my year-end summaries. Um, I've always been fascinated with film and had a camera since I was 12. And uh, this is just uh, one of many projects that I started doing. Uh, where I consciously at the end of each year would talk about the year. My first year was a little more ambitious. I, <laughs> I wanted to, back in 77, I wanted to film the entire year as it happened. And uh, so I <laughs> ended up making a three-hour movie about that year. And I realized that actually took up the rest of the 1978 just to film 1977. So I realized pretty quickly that I couldn't do that every year. Otherwise, I'd just be filming my life constantly. So I decided at that point to talk on camera and just kind of tell about the year, just to some of the highs and lows. Well, and that's what, something I find very interesting, and especially the context that Matthew Bate, that Matthew has worked it into this documentary, Sam Clemke's Time Machine, because as we're learning about you and seeing the human side of you, he's also paralleling this with the journey of the golden record through space right. of the highlights of humanity. Mm-hmm. How does that? How did that make you feel when you got to, when you got to Cape Canaveral and you found out this was the approach that Matthew had in mind with all thirty five years of footage of your life? <laughs> well, you know, you actually get to see that in the film. I, I assume you've seen the film, right? I have. Well, the uh, the interesting part was that he kind of opened it up, and uh, suddenly you're, you, the viewer, are witnessing what we are, are all experiencing, and that is the uh, tearing down of the fourth wall and opening up and, and letting everybody see the process. Mm-hmm. I think, I think the, the, he sort of first opened the magic of filmmaking, and we're so easily captivated by the, uh, the nature of storytelling. Mm-hmm. But here, here, when you open it up, and for example, when he starts showing you that the French narrator was actually someone that he found in Australia, to read his own text, it's kind of, didn't that just blow your mind? <laughs> I, everything about this documentary was absolutely mind-blowing, Sam. You know, not the least of which was, you know, I could feel your palpable fear and trepidation when you did, after you turn over all of your materials for him mm-hmm. to start distilling, and you're not hearing anything, you're not hearing anything, you're not hearing anything. And the look on your face, and... There was a sadness in your voice of, uh, and disappointment that my heart just went out to you in that moment as I'm watching this. But then uh-huh. we see one of, the, one of the most human experiences. You can go from sadness and disappointment to utter joy when you do sit in that hotel room and you see that, that cut on his laptop. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All I wanted was just a, just a little bit of a inside peek of what was going on you know just one percent that's all i was asking anyway yeah you you get to see the the entire uh spectrum of human emotion and um that's that's kind of i think what uh, appeals to most people is the the way it was sort of edited so that you could actually start to see the the process of how it was constructed and put together Hmm. But it also, you know, even as much as interesting as that is, especially once Matthew has to start distilling 
your life down to a manageable <laughs> 90 minutes or so. Right. Um, y- you know, it's everything that you experience, though, and they're out of everything included, and I can only imagine how much more footage there is that is not included um, that, oh, yeah. he, that he sorted through and went through. But we can all relate to there is something very human and very relatable and resonant for everybody with every experience that you have. Good. You know, I, I, I hope most people feel that way. Um, just about everybody I've talked to, and I just got back from a six week tour of Australia, and all the people who saw the film say mostly what you're saying. But occasionally, like for example, it showed at the Denver Film Festival two. Uh, weeks ago, and mm-hmm. that was before I was home, and so that's where I grew up, and some of my old family and friends went there, and uh, there's a certain fraction of people who I think would not feel quite as magnanimous as you did, and uh, they're the ones who I'm uh, a little more uh, concerned about seeing, but I think the majority of people who actually will choose to seek this film out will feel much like you did, that uh, this is the story of humanity, and we can all relate to it. Well, and, you know, granted, there, and I'll be the first one to say it, is that there are moments I'm watching in the documentary, and I just want to reach in that screen and slap you upside your head, where you're feeling sorry <laughs> for yourself, or it's, oh, woe is me, or, well, I don't have a job, well, it's like you're Eeyore. Uh-huh. You, you reminded me of Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh, and I just want, uh-huh. Uh-huh. I just want to reach in and slap you. But then, uh, when you have those moments where you're really applying yourself and you've pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, gotten yourself out of a depressive state, out of the gutter, and it's like you're looking forward to things and finding a direction, that's where you have, I have to applaud and say, this is fabulous, and everybody, if you can do it, everybody can do it. Yes, absolutely. I, I, I represent all of humanity that way, don't I? <laughs> you you very much you very much do, Sam. Now, is this I have to ask this only because you've had so many projects you've started and stopped over over the years and ventures that you've thought about doing or your caricatures, which are just fabulous, by the way. Well, um, thank you. I appreciate that. I love those. I would have loved to see more of those within within the context of the documentary. But is this really this coming to fruition? First, your YouTube piece that Matthew saw that encouraged, that inspired him to, to reach out to you. Is this really the first thing you ever fully completed and are seeing all the way through? No, no, heavens no, no. This, the film is, is definitely the tip of the iceberg about what, it, what you see. I mean, you're seeing a kind of a fairy tale, and it illustrates to me exactly the... Uh, artistic nature of editing and, and how editing is like a sculpting of something. You know, you can, you can really pretty much tell any tale you want to with just mm-hmm. juxtaposition, different elements to it. But no, no, I, <laughs> there's plenty of experiences I've had that, uh, you know, did not even make it into the film. I mean, for example, it doesn't really show me with many um, of my male friends. And one of the questions I got at one of the recent screenings was, Sam, don't you have any male friends? <laughs> I said, of course, I've got lots of male friends. They just didn't make the final cut. <laughs> so uh, boy, that, that I probably to be a little bit cynical about the uh, editing process itself. <laughs> I bet some of those friends of yours are sitting there going, uh-huh, uh-huh, I'm on the cutting room floor. That's right. 
That's right. In fact, that was a that was a, a, a show I wanted to develop in my twenties. The, the cutting room floor. I wanted to seek out old footage and stuff that didn't make it into films. I always thought that would be fascinating to see. Well, if this was what did make it in, what didn't make it in? Mm-hmm. I I think that would be totally. Wouldn't you watch a show like that? Oh, absolutely. The cutting room floor. You know, I absolutely. You Kellogg's. I abs- I don't know if Kellogg's would sponsor it, but you know, I absolutely would watch that. And I think that's one of the big driving factors with a lot of the Blu-ray and DVD sales now. Are those directors extras, the deleted scenes? Because everybody wants to see what didn't Absolutely. make it didn't make it in. I think Burt Reynolds is the one that really started that with his Smokey and the Bandit films when he would take those outtakes, the cutting room floor stuff, and tap it onto the credits at the end of the film. I remember that, yes. And that was really the first time that had ever been done. And you know, over the- I, I don't know if you've experienced this, but it sometimes takes me six hours to watch a two-hour movie. One hour to watch the, the film itself, then you watch all the extras, and then you watch it again with a commentary. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it's a full-bodied experience watching a, hey, a, a good movie these days. Sam, I'm right there with you, and, and I know Emily can even tell you that, you know, I don't just watch a film once. It's like when I screen a film, I screen it once, I will screen it a second time, and if I can, I'll screen it a third time before I do interviews. Yes, that's that's excellent uh, uh Advice, because I think Roger Ebert said that too. You, you, you're never going to see a film the same way as you saw it your first time. I always get something new every time I watch, say, The Big Lebowski or something. There's always something new to uh, observe. That's just it, because you want to look uh, objectively at something, which is how my first viewing of this documentary I looked at very objectively. Then I watched it again mm-hmm. with emotion and subjectivity coming in. You know, because if you yeah, can, if you yeah. can get me through the objectivity part, you know, when the subjectivity comes in, it's just going to elevate the experience. Yes, absolutely, I agree. Now, how did you did you ha- get to have any input at all uh, with Matthew on the editing process? No, no, no. no. I mean, if, at first it was kind of a, there was a conversation or two that we had early on that this was going to be a kind of a sharing experience. Mm-hmm. We were going to be making this film together, but really what <laughs> what I was doing, as I learned very quickly, is my job was to just excavate my footage and send him stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, go through my old VHS tapes, my old Super 8 films, and my old reel-to-reel audio tapes, digitize all those, <laughs> put, put 100 hours on a, a hard drive, and send it halfway around the world to Australia. Okay, that was my job. Why do I think you were doing all the hard work in the in this in this documentary process? <laughs> Draw your own conclusions. <laughs> uh, I know how long it takes to take all the old stuff because I have tons of that stuff myself, and to digitize and break it all down and go through, and some of it may need you know a little bit of rest- restorative work done to it. That's time consuming, right? Time well, in all fairness, uh, he has an objective eye that I don't. I, I, you can't look at your own film, your own footage objectively. So they, he had, plus he had a crew of people that he was able to do things like uh, transcribe my end-of-the-year summaries into a readable format, mm-hmm. which is an experience I recommend to anybody. If you've never had your life transcribed and then uh, printed out and turned into a like a 800-page novel you haven't lived <laughs> well could we see that possibly as a companion coming out to the documentary 
let's do it. Let's print that up and I'll even illustrate it with my caricature. See, <laughs> I think that would be a wonderful companion. You know, this year people can get can go out and buy, you know, Sam Klumke's Time Machine. They can do a digital download. And then next year they can buy the book. Oh, man, I want you as my publicist, I'd have to say. <laughs> I'll tell you. If there's a way, if there's a way to, to make it all blend, I'm going to find it for you, Sam. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> now, as, as you say, you've been, been on this promotional tour and the journey now. What is the most, what does this mean to you to have people see your life playing out before them, you know, globally? Yeah. One of the things that I've learned and that I've kind of adjusted to is the fact that it's, I have to kind of accept for the large degree that it's not really me. It's not really the Sam Klemke story, which, of course, when someone says, hey, Sam, I want to make a documentary about you, you automatically start thinking, oh, wow, well, I've got the footage to do this. I, you know, let me make sure I get all my the right people for you to interview and to get the talking heads. But they have their own agenda, and that's in this particular case. Matthew Bates is a very talented, creative guy, and he, um, I trusted him after watching his first film, Shut Up, Little Man. Mm-hmm. So it kind of made me realize that, uh, you know, it's going to be a, a different experience. And I had to kind of let go of my identity to some degree, if you will. Mm-hmm. I had to let go of who I thought I was. And after watching the film a number of times, I've probably seen it about 15 times, um, you know, it's not really me anymore on the screen. It's, it's kind of a... Uh, amalgam of human emotion and uh, humanity, highs and lows, warts and all. And so I play this character, I, I, I call him Humanity Klemke. <laughs> <laughs> and that's my, uh, my role, is that I'm just up there, you know, stumbling through life. I'm 58 now, I started doing this in my early 20s, and uh, you, you can really feel the passage of time. Mm-hmm. And, and I, so I, I've just kind of been accepting that as, that character, that guy up there on the screen. Here he is now, Humanity. Let's really hear it for him. Well, <laughs> applause, applause to Humanity Klemke. I, I want to see more from Humanity Klemke. <laughs> we have the footage, believe me. <laughs> oh, Sam, I can't thank you enough. This is an absolute joy. Now Emily's going to have to find time so we can do like a, like a phone or one-on-one just for you, just for you and me. Uh, outside of the show, um, you are absolutely. I'm. I, you are. I'm just, open to that. You sure. are an absolute joy, Sam. And as I said, this one of the most entertaining docs I've seen ever. I just love it. Well, Sam. thank you. It's been a, it's been delightful sharing the most intimate details of my life with you. Well, and I hope to hear more soon. All right. <laughs> Thanks so much, Sam. Thanks, Sam. All right. Bye. Pleasure talking to you. Bye bye. Bye. And that was Sam Klemke talking about Sam Klemke's time machine. And now we have the fabulous. Who do we have? Timothy and Anika on. Actually, it's just Anika right now. Tim is. Um, unfortunately, we we actually work full time jobs as um, camera assistants, and so we are on set right now. And he's on a process trailer as we speak. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Well, I'm, yeah. I am happy to have you, Annika, because, you know, he's from Philly. I'm from Philly, so I, uh, I, I can figure probably what he's going to say anyway. So, <laughs> you know, this is, 
one of <laughs> the Barkley marathons just I just watched it in with a smile on my face and shaking my head in utter disbelief. Uh, where where do you get the because you guys both have a lengthy career, you know, yeah. in working camera, in film, in television, you seamlessly go back and forth between the two um, big films, little films you know, consistent TV series like Mad Men and Fresh Off the Boat. Um, You actually, I love it. You you worked on Southland Tales. I did, yeah. Wow, that's an obscure, most people don't know that one. I know that one well. The boys (laughs) boys used to sit in Hanano's to write it. Oh, wow, yeah. That was a great experience, actually, to work on that. But, you know, all those experiences, I don't think anything that you have done has prepared you... (laughs) Or the Barkley Marathons, the race that eats its young. Yes, I would agree with that for definitely. Um, yeah, Kim and I both um, are working camera assistants and have for a long time worked in film and TV and commercials. Um, and it was actually at the end of a season on Mad Men that we both, um, you know, it was a great show to work on. It was exhausting. And at the end of it, we just wanted to create a project ourselves and we stumbled upon this article in the believer magazine written by leslie jameson called the immortal horizon which was about the barkley marathon Mm -hmm. and it was a story that was written like fiction it was just too hard to believe and neither of us are really sports-minded people and that's not really really what attracted us to the story but it was just it was so crazy and we started investigating, and no one had ever made anything about it. So we we started the process. Well, and I have to say, you know, the way you have it constructed, I'm not a sports-minded person right. by any stretch of the imagination, especially the way that all the Philadelphia teams have been playing, which I know that <laughs> I know that Tim will sim- would sympathize with. But yeah. it's. Uh, I, you're watching, and it's not about the athleticism. It's about the the personal perseverance and the yeah. psyche of these people that subject themselves to a hundred miles, a fun run, a sixty mile fun run. <laughs> There's nothing fun about sixty miles and climbing fifty nine thousand one hundred feet up mountains and back down again. Yeah. Oh my. God, when you found out that this was mm-hmm. not a fictional story that Leslie had yeah. written, that this was real, yeah, did you, you know, go out and try and find Ed Furtaw's book um, that he had written about the yeah. the marathons? How what was your process in figuring? Oh, this is going to be a cool documentary, and we're going to do this, and we're going to take cameras, and we're going to go up fifty nine thousand one hundred <laughs> feet into the mountains, and we're going to direct this ourselves. Yeah, it was really a very quick process, and probably if we had sat down and thought about it for any amount of time, we would have been just thought we were crazy, but thankfully, we didn't actually have a moment to think about it. We we found out about the race. We read the article. We, we found Laz. We contacted him, and within about six weeks, we were in Tennessee on a scout with him. And the race was not that long after that. It was about a month before. And so we just went for it. And um, I think that the amount of work and insanity that was involved 
definitely if we if we had thought about it, we we probably probably would have wanted to take a year to prepare. But thankfully, we didn't because we ended up being there at the Barclay. You know, it had been going on for 25 years when we had first heard about it, and only 10 people have ever finished this race. Mm-hmm. And we happened to be be there a year that was just groundbreaking, and, and it will never happen again. So the process of kind of from the idea to starting to shoot was really only like six weeks. I mean, we probably started shooting even earlier than that. We, I think, did one interview before we went to meet Laz. Mm-hmm. So that was really fast, and then we ended up finding um, some local camera operators to help us. It was a really bare-bones crew, truly independent film in all um, capacities. <laughs> and, yeah, we've been working on it ever since. It's been almost four years now. Wow. Now, you know, how instru- how did you go about constructing because you have a there is a definite through line in this documentary. It's not just like you're out there with cameras and you, you you're you're showing somebody popping blisters on their feet and <laughs> you know, laying down in water when they shouldn't because they've just popped the blisters on their feet. Uh, right. you know, or people falling into briar bushes, you know, going down a hill. How do you go about, how did you construct this through line as you were shooting and or in the editing process afterwards? Yeah, it was probably truly in the editing process because when we had the idea to go, you know, we knew that the finisher rate was so low that um, we could have gone there and no one could have finished. We were prepared to just go and do whatever happens, you know, shoot whatever happens. So um, when we got there and and all these amazing things happened, that was great. I mean, we would have made something without that, but we really used the Barkley as a whole, this weird thing that happens in Tennessee Mm -hmm. with all of its quirks as, as the main character. And we kind of used the year that we were there as a sort of skeleton structure for the narrative mm-hmm. of the film. And that's kind of really how it um, ended up playing out in the end. Had had something else happened, it probably would have been differently. But really it was in the post-process when we found out what all the stories were that we were able to create that narrative. And, and our editor, Mariana Blanco, was, was really helpful in that process. Um, and the amazing music by Tyler Gibbons. It's like everything really came together um, with that. No, I, I have, was going to mention uh, Tyler Gibbons' score, that bluegrass, that the bluesy yeah. blue, Oh, my. That just adds, that adds a real element of fun. Yes. I mean, already yeah. you see Lazarus Lake as he's taking his dollar and 60 cents from people for their, <laughs> their admission fee and a flannel shirt. Or a plain shirt. I mean, right. and you think the whole thing is going to be something very comedic, very funny. Yeah. But then you realize the intensity and the severity and the discipline to actually tackle the Barkley Marathon. Yeah. And that's really a lot of what the Barkley is about. I mean, everything about it has this, it rides this line between something that's very humorous and, and sort of mocking and something that's also the most important thing that a lot of these people will ever do in their lives. Mm-hmm. So it rides that line of, of great humor and, and comedy with really intense 
meaningful characters. And there are a lot of deeper levels that, that um, Laz go, goes into with that. But mm-hmm. um, it's that's kind of what it made it so fascinating for us, that it wasn't, you know, it's not, you can't really fit it in any genre because Mm-mm. it's not really a sports movie. It's not really a, you know, it's not really a comedy, but it's funny. It's like kind of um, dips in all these different in genres, and, and that's what we really um, loved about it and loved about the, the story of it. Well, and what I found interesting with the, the runners, and of course they're limited to 40 runners maximum each year, Laz is very, you know, I like that they do that. Of course, who knows, your med- the medical team would have to be like five times bigger if you had any more than that. Right. Uh, but the the content the participants i mean we've got physicists there and you mentioned you know for some you know maybe the biggest thing they do and you think about this is how they approach it and you're sitting there and you're listening to their credential their credentials a physicist a glaciologist okay and this is going to be the most impressive thing that you do it's like oh my god they- yeah it it's really interesting to see who who decides to go there because it, 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 they do get a high number of um, people with PhDs, and, and a lot of them are scientists, engineers. And it's really kind of like another challenge in their lives. They've, they've had so many challenges. They've done so many things. And this is kind of another step in that process of, of challenging themselves. And they do, I mean, the Barclay gets participants from all over the world. People come to this small town in Tennessee to to do this crazy thing from all over the world and a lot of them you know they have this need to to challenge themselves mm-hmm. and that's a really fascinating thing to see because you know a lot of it is not they can't explain why sometimes some some people have a reason some people don't want to talk about why but it's almost just the fact of being there and doing it without having to explain it that that is almost the definition of of why this race exists and that's really why Laz made it was to make something at the absolute limit of human capability yeah well if this isn't the absolute limit of human capability i don't know what is you, know, I mean, it's just, <laughs> you watch this and you know limping i mean i think people look bad when they're crossing the the finish line for the los angeles marathon or the new york marathon <laughs> yeah. and they're like Ew. dehydrated and <laughs> dropping over the line and here you know, they're on their fifth lap. They're going 100 miles over this course, backwards, forwards, and at night. Yeah. And it's not it's not streets. This is rugged terrain. And it, yeah. it boggles, it boggles the mind. Now, did you, did you until, I know you got a local crew uh, to mm-hmm. shoot while you were there. How deep into the actual course of the race did you guys venture to shoot or were you allowed to go? Cause I know that Laz is very, that's one of the things very particular. There's no GPS. There's no help. You got to use maps and, and nature and that kind of crap to find your way around. Um, yeah. So how much latitude did you have in terms of accessing the specific course? Yeah, everything we did because this race is so secret and so special to the people that do it. Everything we did, we did with Laz's blessing. So he, when we went on a scout with him, he showed us where we could put camera operators and and cameras or uh, an unmanned camera 
And a lot of the, of course, the, the course is gigantic. So we really wouldn't have been able to get to places that, you know, are six hours deep into the forest. Mm-hmm. But we were able to access certain places and, um, you know, get a lot of great footage from there. And the prison is, is one of the places we went to. And then a lot of things really happen at base camp. That's where a lot of the stories start to unfold. And because we were trying to sort of capture this weird, quirky, unique thing that happens, Mm -hmm. we weren't too interested in kind of running alongside people because that to us is just not interesting. No, that gets old real fast. Yeah. So we we definitely hiked into certain spots. Um, The first day, Tim hiked up, you know, the mountain that we had scouted with Laz, and um, we placed people um, in various um, places, but we didn't have to. Um, there was only one person that actually camped outside, out um, on the course overnight. But the rest of us at night would camp at. You know, we were all camping together um, mm-hmm. at the campground in the base camp. So, so we we definitely got great footage, but also knew that that it wasn't something. You know, we would have to be in better shape than the runners <laughs> to get to some of these places with all of our gear. So that would have been quite um, a test for us. But, um, yeah, luckily we got some um, some great stuff without having to uh, to train for our 20 years. So what, what were you shooting this on? We shot on a, bu- a bunch of different cameras. We, uh, a 70, you know, DSLRs. We had some small... Um, Canyon EP, Sony Handycams that we used um, when we knew people were going to be outside in the woods and it mm-hmm. might be raining or snowing or hailing. And we um, we also had a Black Magic. It was kind of, honestly, it was kind of a very scrappy production mm-hmm. because as camera assistants, you know, we're used to using film cameras or, or Alexas or these really amazing, very expensive cameras. But we, you know, we were in the in the woods of Tennessee and this it's a very scrappy homegrown race. And in the end we, you know, got the footage and it kind of fit the Barkley. And mm-hmm. had we shot it in a way and had a gigantic budget with, you know, drones and what have you, it would have not really fit the sort of homegrown nature of the race. No, I not at all. And you would have lost because you feel that grit. You feel you know, the, the vibe of that region with yeah. every frame of this documentary. And yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think it would have been too polished. Yeah. A, a too, pr- too much production polish. Yes. Yeah. To, to have used. Thank- Thankfully that worked in our favor. <laughs> <laughs> so now after, you know, filming and putting together this, <laughs> this documentary that is all about personal challenge and, you know, pushing your, your psyche above and beyond. What did you learn about yourself in making this documentary? Because this, yeah. this was a big leap for you and for Tim. Yeah, it was a, a huge leap for both of us. And um, after four years of working on it, I mean, we can honestly say that we made a film from start to finish. Like, we pretty much have done everything along the way I would say, except for, for composing music, because that was truly Thai. Like, we've had a hand in every single piece of, of the production. And so that 
taking on that challenge for us was something I think we both really needed Mm -hmm. um, creatively for ourselves after kind of so many years of helping other people um, create their own um, shows and films. Um, But for us, I think we've both learned a lot about ourselves and um, we kind of always equate this process with the Barkley, like just making this film has been our own personal Barkley. And it's been really difficult and painful at times and everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong. Um, But in the end, you know, it was really the process for us that I think we're going to hang on to. And of course, we love the film and, you know, we love that people are enjoying it. Um, But really, it was this this process that... um, we were able to to grow and 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 meet amazing people and go to new places and and challenge ourselves, really push ourselves in a way that we had never done before, and that's really what the Barclay is about. Um, so yeah, it's, it's I think it equates well with with the actual race. Well, and now everybody else can see this this mini masterpiece of yours. Um, <laughs> You're going to open on Friday for one week at the Downtown Independent in L.A. Yeah, it was so this this past Friday, November 27th, and then we'll uh, it's playing till December 3rd there. Okay, and then on you go VOD and digital on December 8th. Yes, yep, um, and that'll be uh, iTunes, Amazon, all the digital platforms, cable VOD, and um, also DVD and Blu-ray from our website and everything. Um, all that information can be found at barkleymovie.com. And for all of my, for all of my regular listeners and viewers, they know that on the video portion of the show cuz we shoot it with three cams and do a full edit afterwards, um, oh, wow. all of that will also be it will be displayed so they don't have yeah. to remember anything. They can just <laughs> look and it'll be right there for them. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, Annika, thank you so so much. This is it, I mean, and I, I, this is absolutely fabulous. A fun, quirky, really unique documentary that I am just, uh, I, I have to watch it again. For, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. We do find that people are, are coming back a second time. Um, the last number of screenings we've had actually repeat viewers, and, and, and someone actually commented the other night that, they were like, had this changed since they saw it last? Because they were getting all new things from it upon rewatching. So mm-hmm. that I think is a is a true compliment. But thank you so much for for having us on the show. Oh my God! Any time, and please, please, let me know what you're doing next when you're doing it. Sounds good. We'll do. Thanks so much, Annika. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye. And that was Annika Iltis, the uh, co-producer and co-director of the Barkley Marathons, the race that eats its young. We're going to take a very short break and then come back and get to some clips of Darnell Margulies, Spirit Award nominee and Pulitzer Prize winner. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is the number one newspaper in Culver City, covering local news, politics, and community events, with sports by Mitch Chortkoff and movie reviews by Debbie Lynn Elias, Culver City Observer is the place to go to be in the know. When you think Culver City and the heart of Screenland, think Culver City Observer. When you think movies and movie reviews, think 
Culver City Observer. Culver City Observer, a division of Arizona Newspaper Group, is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And welcome back to Behind the Lens. We are we're getting close to the end of the hour. My gosh. Um, but we're going to talk about End of the Tour. End of the Tour is a, it's a fascinating and it's absolutely wonderful uh, film directed by James Ponsell, written by playwright Donald Margulies. Uh, and it is based upon, it adapts uh, David Lipsky's book, Although, of course, you end up becoming yourself, which was based on his five days in the winter of 1996 interviewing David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace uh, wrote one of the most amazing books of all time, Infinite Jest. If you can get through the book, um, it's 1,137 pages. So if you can get through it, more power to you. It will take you a while, but it's well worth it. I can tell you that. Um, the documentary, star, it stars Jason Siegel as Wallace and Jesse Eisenberg as, as Rolling Stone writer David Lipsky, who conducted these interviews, which all came to light after uh, Wallace's suicide some years later. Uh, but this, is, this film now focuses on the Lipsky book, the audio tapes, and those five days uh, the end of the tour for Infinite Jest. So, I had to ask Margulies, how does a project like this come to a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright? Totally agree. I was not a fanboy when I came to this project. I really wasn't. I, I was moved to reread him and read mm-hmm. finally Infinite Jest when I read the Lipsky book. The Lipsky mm-hmm. book really sort of gave me, sort of, sort of took my hand into the world of Wallace. Mm-hmm. Or the mind of Wallace, and uh, and it was really only after I read uh, Lipsky's memoir that I appreciated the loss to our culture. Mm-hmm. He was just a remarkable thinker. And expounding on that, this is what Margulies had to say about the brilliance of Wallace. When you take somebody of the density of brilliance like Wallace. The thing that is exciting about Infinite Jest is the virtuosic performance of it, mm-hmm. the, the verbal fireworks. It's not about the stories. When you reduce it to stories without, and you extract or remove that inimitable voice, it's not that compelling. It's not that special. So with something like brief interviews with hideous men, it's just kind of unpleasant. It was very uncomfortable in you know, its translation. You know, it's not the same as having this voice that he created mm-hmm. in your head as you're reading it, one-on-one, mm-hmm. page to, to brain, and you're hearing his voice. Mm-hmm. That is a very profound and intimate experience. But if you are taking the voice out, and it's only about what it looks like and who's going where, and it, I, don't think it, I don't think it translates. Yeah. So what the Lipsky book gave me was this wonderful uh, gift of of um, understanding, as you say, of what it was that that compelled him to write. Mm-hmm. And he articulates it, and he jokes about his obsessions, and we see him grappling with his struggles. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that for me was a very exciting idea to put to to capture that. And we're going to end the show on that note. I'll be back next week. You'll hear more from Donald Margulies from James Ponsult. And we have a treat with Steve Alton, author of Meg, and children's book author Nancy Gautier. And we're going to talk about Mermaids on Mars, which is also going to be playing at the L.A. Children's Film Festival. Until next week.